is the strength of the founder becomes the weakness of the organization. And somehow we found ourselves in that exact plight. We ended up with a product that had a lot of holes and, you know, ultimately we had a lot of course correction still to do. This is a better product original series sharing stories of big bets made in product. Did they pay off? Let's find out. What happens when you take your finger off the pulse of your product? Matthew Sniff launched Mad My Customers as a gift for his dad. It quickly grew in user adoption, allowing him to go all in. Little did he know the impact COVID would soon have on his growing startup. While he could have folded under the weight of the market ship, Matthew evolved the product to meet the needs of his users. And that meant stepping down to CEO to move into a product role. It all started out very organically, I guess you would say, right? So originally, I think it was near Christmas time of 2014, and my father came to me with the idea directly. You know, at the time, I was a developer out on uh, on the West Coast for a large unicorn company, a Silicon Valley unicorn, working on their mobile team. And, you know, I was always building things. I was just working on things on the side. Like, I was a guy who was going to, you know, five hackathons a year or more, just because I loved it, right? I, I never really won any of those hackathons, but I just, you know, I loved building things, right? So, I built a lot of product for people over the years. And, you know, so this wasn't anything out of the ordinary. You know, ironically, at that time, I was actually explicitly trying to not start another business. I had just gotten out of a startup that I had gone, taken through my whole time during university uh, that I'd started with one of my older brothers and with a couple of friends that I met in school. And I was trying to not start a business, actually. So when he came to me, I was just trying to solve a problem for him, really, right? So it started out sort of as this Christmas present for him in 2014. And then I put it on the App Store after developing a prototype a couple of months later. And it started to sell itself a little bit. And, and that's sort of when I knew I had something, but not necessarily something worth working on. So I told myself, if I could get the 10 active paying customers who weren't my friends, my family, or you know my neighbor's dog or something like that, I would have something I knew was worth working on. And so by the time I got to 10, I really doubled down on it and spent a lot of my time and, you know, in the evenings and weekends working on it. By the time I got to 100 active paying customers, I told myself I quit my job, which I did in, I think, February 2016. And I took it full time. And and when I was reaching 1,000, I knew it was kind of ready to raise venture capital at that point. And when we finally did raise, we were sort of a small ragtag team of just three folks at that point. And I hadn't really invested a single penny up until that point. The business really had fed itself, more or less. Help me in the timeline. When was your first you know, fundraise? When did you get around 1,000 customers? That would have been uh, summer of 2016. We were raising money. By the end of that year, we had gotten a commit from a firm in uh, the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina region. So it would have been end of 2016, early 2017. I've built something small for my dad. It was a really small macro inside of Excel to help his law firm like manage your billable hours, but I never launched in the app store now. But other than that, I think this is the first time I've heard of a product that started as a gift to to someone's father. So what was it then and, and how has it how is how has it evolved since then? Like what was the problem you were solving initially? Yeah, that, that initial problem was as simple as I've got a spreadsheet of a thousand customers that I need to map out and colorize on a map so that I could understand where I need to plan myself to be that week, right? So my dad was always, you know, in the field like five days out of a week, sometimes six, and uh, he would he would be the guy who's who's hunting and farming, as we say, 
in sales vernacular, he's, you know, upselling existing customers. He's uh, doing repeat sales, but he's also looking for new business, new accounts. And so he, instead of managing himself off of a spreadsheet or, you know, a clunky old CRM system that nobody in his, in his team really used, uh, he wanted just a quick and intuitive, easy way to, to visualize how to spend his time, where to spend his time, that sort of thing. So it started out as this really basic map visualization tool with, uh, you know, not much other than just being able to suck in a spreadsheet, visualize that on a map, colorize those pins, and then filter and sort by them. From there, it kind of grew into a route optimization tool and some other peripheral features that are really, you know, nice to have for salespeople who work in the field, like being able to spatially identify new leads, right, using uh, Google Maps uh, Places API and stuff like this. And so that is originally where it started. So when we fast forward to, you know, 2020, where's Map My Customers at that point in terms of, you know, business and team size and, and, and product maturity? Yeah, so, you know, we've come a long ways. I think, uh, you know, originally we were selling the product for like $4 a month and we've been all over the place. I think, you know, at this point we've got some folks paying us, you know, six figures a year, but it's, you know, it's an interesting business model because we have a bit of a feeder model where we've got a large consumer pool of customers that use our tool as individual reps, but don't work on a team, right? They just use it on their own. And we've got more than half our business, which is really, you know, named accounts that pay us by invoice and we formally onboard them and that sort of thing. So the business started out 100% consumer and now it's more than a majority, you know, B2B. And so it's really evolved over the years. How did that evolution happen? Were you getting requests or was it intentional? Me, like you say, we need to go shift this, you know, revenue wise to go focus on businesses or was it happening a bit organically where you're starting to get, you know, different types of potential customers asking for features and you start realizing that you need to shift your market? So, I mean, a little bit of both, right? It was not kind of like overnight and, and the transition is still really occurring over time. I mean, you know, we definitely had to rev up a sales team. I think we did that in later 2017 when we took the initial funding. We built a CS team, we built a sales team and we started to do more outreach because at that point we really had been all 100% organically inbound. And so from that point, we started to do business with bigger companies and start to really pursue bigger accounts. And that was a different motion than we had been used to uh, for a very long time. It was, you know, a very consumer support oriented model. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, nowadays we are still sh- shifting more towards that B2B angle, but we can never neglect the large pool of consumer users that we have because ultimately 90% or more of our business ends up coming from reps that, you know, mention us through word of mouth or other means to their to their managers, right? So it's it's really a bottoms up sales approach. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. Well, I want to dive in a little more into 2020 because I think you kind of got I mean, COVID and pandemic impacted every business in some way, some some different than others. And I think with with yours, I imagine it was challenging because your your product is for you know traveling the the traveling salesperson, the field rep. What was the impact like for for your product? <laughs> it was a large impact. I mean, it basically knocked us off of track for the better part of a full year and. Not too many customers left us, actually. More so customer acquisition became pretty difficult. We had just uh, really put a lot of resources behind sales in 2018, 2019. And so going into 2020 was a little bit of a sucker punch for, uh, you know, for a company that sells a product focused on people who are traveling when traveling is not happening anymore. So you know, we're mostly a field productivity play. And, and that, 
that talk track doesn't work on the phone anymore when you're trying to sell new customers, right? So we're starting to see a pretty strong uptick in the number of teams partially or fully back in the field. But fundamentally, our business is definitely still searching for a way to evolve, right? So early on in COVID, we didn't know whether COVID would be a thing for, I think the first week, everybody remembers where they were when COVID first hit. You know, it's kind of like, where were you when 9-11 happened, right? It's like, where were you when COVID first shut your office down? And so we were not sure if I was going to be around for a month or six months or a year or forever. And I don't even know that we're still 100% certain that it's going to end ever, right? So we needed to just take stock of where we were at, really, right? And uh, did our ICP change, right? Did we think our ICP changed? Ultimately, we decided that, no, it didn't really change that much. We think our business has not fundamentally changed forever. We think it's definitely evolved a little bit. We didn't lose all of our customers. We even grew some of our customers throughout COVID. And when we look back at a win-loss analysis of our sales deals over the same time period, nothing really stood out about the structure of these teams fundamentally changing forever. A lot were still excited to eventually get back out in the field. But the reality of it was that we weren't going to know the answer, right? We're not going to know whether we're right or wrong. The data was not overwhelmingly obvious. And so it was really murky. Some thought it would be changed forever. Some thought it wouldn't. Some thought it would be in the middle. And, and then we take a look at sort of, well, what are people anecdotally saying? Customers, prospects, you know, we still, I think, average, you know, something like 50 demos we do a month for our sales team, right? And so we're getting a lot of feedback on what people are looking to do. And, you know, what happened when COVID hit for these sales teams is your team transitions to start selling remotely and the space gets really busy, really fast. Your competitors are starting to hit the same contacts up faster because they don't have to travel, and you have to figure out how to differentiate yourself. The cons against going in the field is, is really travel costs are no longer there. More budget is now there to invest in power dollars, things of this nature, etc. And video calls can be effective in a lot of cases, right? So do we feel like people are going to long-term want to go in the field to differentiate themselves, right, against their competition that's currently rapid dialing their market that they used to travel to? Yes and no, right? But we don't really know the answer, right? So what do we know in a murky reality that we can focus on, right? Because ultimately, we said, okay, our ICP did not change. It's just what they expect from us changed a little bit. How they expect to use our tools probably changed a little bit. But whatever green things are true about the user, the rep, the field sales rep, that's our person we're building for, right? What's true forever and ever about that individual we're building for? And so ultimately we took a look at that, like, what can we build for for the field rep, right? And so a lot of things, again, we tried to back solve for, but the main ones were, how do we get a rep to increase their use of our tool, their engagement and dependence on our tool, and see an ROI from it? Because ultimately, when COVID hits, not only does our usage plummet, right, because people aren't using us in the field anymore, and most of our usage is with our mobile app, they plan on don't see the ROI super obviously anymore like they used to, right? So those are the things that were really difficult to to deal with when COVID hit for us. Well, it seems like those are also tied together too. Like you need them using the product to see the value of the product as well, right? Oh, absolutely. And so what's difficult is exactly that, right? And so what do we do from here? So rather than completely change our ICP we're going after, right? Rather than say, hey, let's go after inside sales teams. We decided to focus on how we could deliver the same sort of value we did before, but in a more relevant and probably not shocking to anybody, less fully travel dependent sort of way, right? And so how can we get people, these field sales reps who, the reality for them is they might go back out in the field 100% of what they used to do before. They might be sort of in a hybrid fashion where they're sort of 
sometimes out in the field again and you know sometimes behind the desk or they might not ever go back in the field again right we just do not know so what we do know though across the board the common denominator the things that are definitely true before now and in the future is that a lot of the best performing sales teams are refining their process and discovering new ways for reps to continually be more effective and ultimately that is what my customers is meant to do it's meant to make these field reps more productive in the field it's meant to not only fill in gaps in their day but help them understand what should they do right now what should they do in the future and get them motivated to actually compete against themselves and so ultimately we're building towards that sort of a future and i think it's still clear one year post covid when you look at all this that there's going to be a return to field travel but Again, regardless, the winning sales teams, whether they're inside or outside or in between, are inevitably becoming more metrics and process driven. So we got to take a look at how do we build towards making sure these reps actually get usage from our tool and, and see the ROI in it. So we're in uncertain times phrase, just like been beaten to death. But if we go back to that phrase, you're almost acknowledging that in your field of field sales and in-person visits, Rather than sit there and try to predict the future, we think this is going to happen. You're embracing the fact that it's fluid. And so that seems to be different than where you probably were in the years preceding, where you understood how field teams worked. You go figure out what they needed, what problems they're trying to solve, and then you solve them through the product and you just keep building that customer. But shifting from a known world that you all were in to this uh, either in-between world or the new normal of field sales, whatever that looks like seems like that would have a lot of impact on how you all work even internally um, in terms of figuring out what that looks like and staying in tune with how it's evolving. It's a moving target for sure. I mean, it's really difficult to pin down the voice of the customer in terms of like what is important to the customer this month and what is important to the customer 12 months from now and, and, and has it changed, right? And you get all this, this data back from folks who are talking to customers across product, success, support, marketing, sales, et cetera. There's a lot of different feedback out there and it's hard to kind of sometimes synthesize it and, and, and determine trends of how it's changing over time, right? But again, like it's never a bad idea to solve you know, for usage and ROI for your tool, especially if you're selling a, a B2B product. And so for us, again, like I mentioned, it comes back to the ICP. Our ICP didn't really change that much. We're still selling to outside sales teams. There still will be outside sales teams. Maybe not as many as there were before, but a huge chunk of them are still there. And ultimately, can we expand our ICP a little bit? Probably with what we're building, yes. But ultimately, we're going to try to solve for usage and ROI. And to do that is going to involve a little bit more focus on leveling up our product in the sense of what we think it could actually do to deliver ROI to our end users. Like we were before COVID hit, just thinking about, well, you know, one of the big features, just for example, is uh, how do we deliver mileage tracking to our to our reps? How do we optimize our, our our routing feature more and more and more and more? Right. So, obviously, that got kind of put on the back burner a little bit when COVID hit. But you know, it's not like we'll never revisit that idea. We're definitely going to you know try to make tools for people who are in the field. But now we have to think about okay, whether they're in the field or not, how do we make tools that transition well between the field and and, and behind the desk? And how do we make tools that whether they're medium specific, like whether or not you're in the field or not, ultimately increase usage of your tool and, and make your tool more a planning tool, a proactive tool. And so it's not 100% different than where we were before, but ultimately we just have a lot more to, to think about because we, we just don't know what the future holds. But again, we're just going to be solving for making sure that people actually use our tool you know, in, in a world where there's so many different applications and productivity tools they could be using. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And I, this is a good you know, segue to, to where I also like to, because I know, you know, part of this shift that you've made as a company is also related to a shift that you've made with Matt, my customers, you're the CEO, um, but you since stepped aside from that role to lead the product team. I'd love to know more about that decision, what led to it and, and sort of how it impacted the business. So, you know, I, I moved on for a couple of reasons. I mean, the main one was actually that we weren't, you know, sitting pretty, you know, not a surprise. We were not like Zoom or Slack going into this pandemic. Our tool, again, was inherently designed for people who work in the field. And at this point, I've been working on the business for six years. I'd raised uh, just a, a tad under $3 million in venture capital. And so the business needed a few things that I could no longer give it. It needed more capital, it needed more people, and it needed more time. And I needed more than anything, a story and a business partner. And, you know, I met our new CEO, Ben, through one of our venture capitalists in North Carolina, and he consulted with us for four months. We got along great. And after a lot of selling on my part, he finally came aboard full time. And, you know, within a few months, this really gave us a fresh take. And, a, and I got to focus on what I like doing best, making products that people love to use. And, and I don't have to deal with all the operational and sales and administrative components as much at you know, or at all anymore, which is, which is very helpful after doing it for such a long time. But more than anything, again, it's just, it's a great injection of energy. It's a motivation for the business. Also, it's been super helpful to, to, to bring some great people in as well. What was the, the, the moment that the idea struck you to do something like that? Cause that's kind of a big decision to make, or even to have the awareness that, Hey, maybe, I, I should shift my role. Was there a moment where it clicked that, oh, there's probably a better path here for Matt, my customers? When you are running lower than six months of runway on a business that has taken as large of a hit to sales as we did during the pandemic, no one's guaranteed to be successful, right? So the name of the game at the end of the day is survive and thrive. So it was a very simple decision. Like, we could give ourselves a story to raise capital, bring in extra people and give us more time. Or you could hit a brick wall or you could, you know, severely reduce your staff, which you never want to do if you don't have to. So and that ultimately would be a huge morale loss. Right. So I wasn't super interested in the last one. I was obviously not super interested in hitting a wall. And then, you know, I think the bonus on top is definitely like, you know, I've obviously gotten, like I mentioned along very well with Ben. And so that's been super helpful, regardless of if I had brought on a new CEO or not, Ben is somebody I would have wanted to work with in some capacity. Has it been freeing to be involved with product? Do you find yourself busier since you were CEO? Has it, has it shifted? What, what's been the, the transition like for you in that role? Yeah, it's really different, right? So instead of talking to sales and marketing folks most of the day, you know, I talk to engineering and, and design so my day definitely starts earlier. So our you know, engineering team is distributed across the globe. We've got folks in the US, Russia, India. So I have you know, most of my day starting around seven and more of my sort of creative thought time and, and unstructured time comes in the afternoons. Whereas before, more of my unstructured time and like get stuff done time was definitely more so in the mornings, but that's now when all my meetings are. So on that side, that's kind of how my physical day has changed to me is not necessarily better or worse for any particular reason. But I really love working with design. Our design partner, Rachel, um, who actually used to be on our marketing team, is is a constant source of great ideas. And just I think we definitely are on the same wavelength with a lot of what we're doing. And, and, and that's another thing that actually was really difficult that I didn't mention is 
when this transition happened, when I brought Ben on, it was definitely a moment where we had to decide, okay, what, what are we going to do with this product team that we have? Because I was shifting into product. And so we had at the time a, a bit of an outsized, relatively junior product team for our size of business, but no, we had no dedicated QA resources. We had no full-time product design. And I had to make the hard call to let go of our entire product team and start from, from scratch. So we got Rachel from a marketing team to move over to product design, where she ultimately really wanted to be. Test automation came in on mobile and web, and we already had it on, on platform. But we, we also added additional manual QA help where there wasn't any before. And so product experience overall really improved because of this. Design and QA is so, 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 so important. You can have the best product manager and product strategy in the world, but if it doesn't look good, it's not easy to use, and it doesn't work well because it's got bugs it's not going to matter, of course, right? So we definitely were plagued by some of those issues before. I'm curious, you know, you were probably, you know, about four years old as a, as a product, and you, you still said you didn't have full-time, you know, you know design in, in, in QA. How do you end up in that point? And that, was it intentional or is it just sort of you, you grew in one way and, and you just woke up like, oh, we actually have neglected a certain area or was it an intentional thing? It was kind of unintentional. I mean, I don't think any product team sets out to say, you know, let's not do design, right? I mean, unless you really just don't care. We had design for a while. We had design from like 20, late 2016 through early 2019, I think. You know, just the way things had worked out, we ended up not having design for the better part of, well, for more than a year, almost a year and a half. And, and the harder hit was not having QA. I think there's a saying out there that is something that I, I just would, would have in my thoughts quite a bit as sort of this you know whole pandemic was unfolding and the transition was about to happen last year, is the strength of the founder becomes the weakness of the organization. And somehow we found ourselves in that exact plight. We ended up with a product that had a lot of holes. And you know ultimately, we had a lot of course correction still to do. And somehow we ended up in that position where like, you know, like you mentioned, like, how do you end up in that in that spot where you don't have QA or, or design? And I took my finger off the pulse in that sense. Well, and I think a lot of you know, founders I talk to, it it happens. Um, so you wake up and you're you're headed towards this five year mark, and you haven't built everything up um, in the way that you might have thought. So, I'm, so when you look at it, if you look at the history, do you think that you know you would have done anything differently as you sort of built the product up? I would have done some things differently. I would have hired full-time design, product design specifically, such an important role. I mean, you can have the best product spec in the world, but if you don't have a, you know, if you don't have a great visual for that, then nobody's going to implement it exactly as you envision it, right? So product design is really, really critical. Having a great relationship with product design is, is key too. The QA is obviously super, super important. I had gone through a bit of a, of a rough road in the past hiring for uh, engineering leadership. So, you know, I think six years, Matt, my customer's been on the tracks. We've had four different heads of engineering over that same time span, right? So our current head of engineering is fantastic. And, you know, we wouldn't change that at all, but it definitely took some lessons learned to get to that point. But, you know, ultimately, we were having product struggles even before the pandemic, absolutely. And so somehow we ended up in a position where we had a bit of an engineering team that didn't execute exactly the way we needed them to. And that might have been for this, that, or the other type of reason. But ultimately, we had a bit of a junior team that was you know, skewed towards being more junior. We didn't have the right head of engineering early on. 
and we were missing really the right product design partner and we didn't have those QA resources. So in general, I wish I would have known that because we probably would have ended up in this similar position even if the pandemic hadn't occurred. But I just am thankful to have another opportunity to try to course correct the product really. Yeah, it's always tough because I think when you when you try to do retrospectives, you can't tell what is something that was inevitable versus, I mean, everybody could revisionist history, everything to be perfect, but some of those challenges are inevitable and you have to have them to even succeed. So as you gotten through last year, you've had this big transition. What are you looking forward to, you know, in, in the next year? I look forward to a lot. I mean, I get to create again every day and before, uh, you know, I was not really in that creation seat as much, right? So I'm looking forward to the innovation that we're going to do in our product because for about two years, we were just kind of in continual tech debt and sort of rebuild mode. And we're still doing a little bit of that, but you know, we're finally in a spot where we're shipping new features again and we're actually innovating. And I think it'll be really great to see our product overtake the others in the space when we finally innovate and build something that just isn't paralleled out there for our end users. And so there's a lot of really interesting product work, I think, that we're taking on that I won't necessarily divulge on the call. But ultimately, it's been too long since we've, we've innovated, and we're going to get fast back onto that track. Follow the series by joining us at betterproduct.community.